Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEB 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEB1450.com. Now, if you are new to the program, we broadcast every day on 1450 AM from 6 to 7 PM Central, uh, but you can also catch the podcast. So if you missed that or the live stream, you can always go to SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or tune in and find us at Radio Islam USA. Go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any of these conversations that we're having, and also make sure that you are connected to us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. So follow, like our pages, stay connected. Uh, and last but not least, if you'd like to reach out, if you got any comments or questions that you want to keep, maybe more in a bit of a, a private manner, you want to email us, you can do so at producer at radioislam.com. That's producer at radioislam.com. All right, folks. Uh, I am happy to have joining us on the line Dr. Robert L. McKenzie, a senior fellow at New America and director of its Muslim Diaspora Initiative. He's a domestic and foreign policy analyst and scholar of the Middle East and North Africa. An anthropologist by training, McKenzie is an expert in displaced persons, refugee resettlement and integration, and Arab and Muslim communities in the United States and Europe. We're pleased to have him back. How are you doing, sir? Uh, happy to talk with him, hear his insight, but certainly uh, distressed that it seems to be under the last time we talked was not under the best of circumstances either. Um, but uh, we have joining us on the line, Robert McKenzie, Ph.D. Uh, he is a senior fellow at New America and is director of the Muslim Diaspora Initiative and is a domestic and foreign policy analyst and scholar of the Middle East and North Africa with 15 years of applied research, actually more than that, uh, applied research and work experience for the U.S. government, private sector and academia and anthropologist by training, training an anthropologist by training. McKinsey is an expert in displaced persons, refugee settlement and integration in Arab and Muslim communities in the United States and Europe. And we're glad to welcome him back to the program. How are you doing, Bobby? We're pleased to have him back. How are you doing, sir? Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. It's, it's unfortunate that it's under these circumstances that right now our attention uh, very much within the United States uh, and, and globally, I would say, but definitely within the Western world, we're talking about the, uh, the integration, the perception, uh, the treatment of Muslims in the public space. Uh, we're looking at New Zealand, the Al-Nur Mosque and the Linwood Mosque, uh, 50 folks, uh, believers, worshipers lost their lives in, uh, you know, just in a horrific terrorist attack. Um, but there is certainly a lot more for us to uh, to consider um, with regard to this. Uh, and I, I welcome your thoughts. Uh, and, you know, how, how do you how do you see this? And and what are the things that we might not be looking at um, because this is such a, a, a brazen and a uh, such a horrible visual? Yeah, I just uh, thanks for having me on. And as you pointed out, it's uh, unfortunate that it, it's, uh, you know, talk about these incidents, but um, uh, we need to confront and address these issues. And, and uh, just to contextualize things for the listeners, I, I've been working on now for the best part of two years um, an, a, an interactive project at New America Foundation that looks at anti-Muslim uh, activities at the state and local level. So we've been tracking on this for, for two years, and we built uh, – the most comprehensive uh, catalog out there of incidents uh, between 2012 and present. And so I, I think one of the, the key takeaways um, that, that I see 
is, um, you know, I, you know, we hear that, you know, these incidents, uh, you know, which has happened in New Zealand could come to the U.S., could happen here. And the fact of the matter is that we've had 763 anti-Muslim incidents since 2012. So these things are already happening here, certainly not at the scale of the massacre or the terrorist attack that we saw in New Zealand. But um, across the country, um, there has been a uh, marked uh, uh, um, increase in anti-Muslim activity starting in 2015. And, and we need to be cognizant of that. And, you know, the, the first point in trying to address any of these things is, is understanding what's happening. And, um, you know, what we've seen is a, is a real rise in anti-Muslim incidents. Mm. Now, in those uh, in, in the time that you've been uh, monitoring these statistics, uh, these over seven hundred acts of, uh, of, of of violence, um, what is the co- uh, common denominator? How much does misinformation, uh, uh, misrepresentation of Muslims uh, in general, uh, how much does that factor into these statistics? It's a great question, but let me just uh, step back for a second and, and um, uh, frame for the listeners that our project looks at, at six different categories of anti-Muslim incidents. And it looks at anti-Sharia legislation, uh, looks at opposition to refugee resettlement, it looks at opposition to mosques, Muslim cemeteries, and schools. That's local ordinances and laws to try and prohibit the building of mosques, uh, cemeteries, and schools. It looks at anti-Muslim actions and statements by elected and appointed officials at the state and local level. And it looks at um, anti-Muslim violence and crimes uh, at the local level, as well as um, hate incidents against mosques and Islamic uh, um, centers and and, uh, Islamic centers. And the reason we look at all six categories is because it gives us a better understanding of what's going on. So, for example, your your question about anti-Muslim sentiment. Since 2012, there have been 153 attempts to uh, push forward anti-Sharia legislation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what's, what's fascinating, if you dig down a little bit into the numbers, is that out of that 153 um, attempts, um, only 11 times has the legislation uh, come into law. And so the question is, why are local, state and local officials trying to uh, push forward anti-Sharia legislation if it never gets passed, and, and the purpose is that they're trying to drum up fear. Anti-Sharia legislation is largely about pushing anti-Muslim uh, sentiment, and so it has a real impact. So there's no question that the sentiment, that, that there are folks out there, elected and appointed officials as well, not, it's not just the media and it's not just uh, far-right fringe groups or individuals. You have elected and appointed officials who are trying to shape and drive um, anti-Muslim sentiment, and this this should concern us. Mm. Do you think uh, Do you think that there is a kind of a tendency to give ourselves uh, a pass because the because we have not had an act of violence on the scale that we've seen in New Zealand, uh, even in light of the uh, the this this manufactured uh, resentment. Uh, and, and negative sentiment towards Muslims through the, uh, you know, uh, which is, you know, we find our legislators at the helm, whether we're talking about uh, on a local or state level or federal. Um, do you think that we're giving ourselves uh, a pass on on conditions for Muslims in the United States? I, I think it's, it's yes and no. But I, I think that this that the, the scale and scope of the massacre in New Zealand 
is a, uh, a wake-up call that we need to, to be more aware of what's happening online. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Internet did not create uh, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment and rhetoric. It didn't create the myths and misinformation about Muslims. But what it does do is it amplifies and helps spread those things. And, you know, there is no question that you can find across the Internet, uh, you know, wild conspiracy theories and myths and misinformation about Muslims that are dangerous. And so what, what happened in New Zealand um, really should be a clarion call that we need to, uh, one, better understand what's happening online in terms of this rhetoric, uh, and two, think about how we can address it. And I, I think if there's one silver lining, and it's hard to find a silver lining in such a tragic um, and horrific event, it's that it may force us all um, to think uh, more deeply about these issues because we, we can't let this happen again. So how can faith communities, uh, and not necessarily uh, Muslim specifically, but I'm thinking about those who provide social services to Muslim refugees, how do they better deal with the anti-Muslim sentiment that is a result of misinformation from online, uh, online sources? Uh, how do they deal with that, especially in those areas where there may not be any or uh, or very few Muslims present in those uh, communities? Well, the issue is with the online material. Uh, the folks that are that are engaging in some of the you know some of the horrific uh, content, really, I mean, really toxic content to be precise, is that you know it doesn't matter whether they're located in an area where there are a lot of Muslims or not. You can find this stuff all over the Internet. And we've done quite a bit of research looking at uh, anti-Muslim content on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you will notice is that if you if you get on YouTube right now and you start searching for someone starts searching for anti-Muslim content, it's not easy to find it first. It takes a while. But what happens is as soon as you start to find it, there's an algorithm, there's a recommend algorithm. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it starts to, to find you. And so by this, I mean, at first, it's hard to find this stuff, but then all of a sudden you are in a cocoon where this stuff is just being fed to you. And the same is true if you wanted to get on YouTube and search for, you know, uh, stuff, you know, content about Chicago Bears. Like all of a sudden it starts to recommend this to you. The problem is that we're not talking about the Chicago Bears and Detroit Lions here. We're talking about hate content directed against the Muslim community, against the Muslim community writ large. Mm -hmm. And YouTube and the tech companies have a responsibility to try and better understand and also think about, at a minimum, how not to ensure that this stuff gets recommended to listeners. That's really problematic. And that's something that the tech companies uh, need to address. But to your very pointed question is what what can Muslim communities do or other communities? I mean, Muslim communities need to have a voice on this. They need to reach out to their elected officials and say, hey, we need you as our elected officials uh, to do more on this front. And, you know, we had the horrible massacre in Pittsburgh. We've now had this horrible massacre in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no question that the Internet is playing a role. There's no question that we also need more leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we haven't talked about yet on this show is, is the near complete failure from the top down. I mean, we, you know, Donald Trump and, and uh, as a presidential candidate was fanning the flames and at times an optionist with regard to some of this rhetoric. Chris Christie, you know, uh, followed in suit during the, the 2016 uh, presidential campaign by saying he wouldn't take in 
a five-year-old orphan from Syria, suggesting there's something fundamentally wrong, so wrong with Muslims that we couldn't even take in unaccompanied minors that need our our uh, our help. I mean, this is this is not good. And so I, I I hope if there's a silver lining in all of this, it's that it's going to be a wake-up call. Uh, to the tech companies, but also to our elected officials, they need to do more. But I think, as you rightly pointed out, um, it's faith-based communities, it's uh, local activism. It, you know, we need to be engaging more with uh, a full range of leaders to try and uh, put some pressure on them to focus on these issues and to engage. What's what's really bothersome, I mean, downright scary for me, is that um, folks— um, folks uh, that are vying for or that now actually have the highest elected office in the, in the land could take positions like that that were so absolutely callous and uh, clearly uh, hateful and, and biased and still have such broad support uh, or enough support, you, you know, to, to, to be elected. Um, and of course, that's that's notwithstanding the fact that, you know, he lost the popular vote by three million votes. But still, the fact that he could ascend to that office uh, and and maintain that type of posture. Uh, what does that say for when it comes to leadership? What does that say for for those yeah. who are in leadership positions, uh, even when faced with these types of numbers? Uh, you know, the, the rise in hate attacks against Muslims and Muslim houses of worship uh, since 2015. Where where do, where where do we go? How do how do we reconcile these these two things? Yeah, this is a great point, and I I just think back to the aftermath of Charlottesville, mm-hmm. when the president said that there were good people on both sides. Yeah, I I mean I I you know on one side you had neo Nazis and KKK members um, that were there you know with a very specific uh, uh, reason for a very specific reason. Uh, there weren't good people on both sides, and this is where leadership matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we can't sit around and wait for, for our president to change. Right. Um, this gets back to your point. I mean, what can communities do? And this is where I, I think that, you know, given what's happened in Pittsburgh and now what's happened in New Zealand and the rhetoric that we've had coming out of the White House, uh, one hopes that this is an, a real opportunity for faith-based communities to come together with different communities and think about how we can these things can be addressed at the local level. I mean, I um, this is this is one of the ways forward. Right now, now you do the research, and it's up for for um, our, our elected leaders, our our leaders in uh, academia. It's it's up for those who are making policy to look at that research and see how uh, they can they can respond to those findings in a way where it contributes to uh, the overall well being. For, for all of us, and particularly we're talking about the Muslim community um, right now in the United States. But when it comes to public education, is there a correlation? I should say, I, I see one. I'd like to hear your your uh, your thoughts on this. There's a definite uh, correlation between the activity, uh, the, the presence of the Jewish Holocaust um, in our public educational system and sensitizing uh, the American public in particular, towards anti-Semitism. Are we missing, yeah. are we missing, you know, I think you see where I'm going here, right? Um, are we missing that type of a commitment towards public education to push back against this rising tide of Islamophobia? Um, how, how do you see educators and those who are making educational policy responding? 
No, I, I, I totally hear your point. And I think that it would, you know, I don't want to, you know, the Holocaust holds a unique place in oh, terms of the scale and scope of, 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 of what happened. Uh, but to your, you know, wider point, mm-hmm. it's that, you know, and, and what the research shows is the folks that don't, you know, that engage in anti-Semitism also engage in Islamophobia mm-hmm. and also engage in anti-LGBTQ and anti-African-American and so on and so forth. Right. You know, these folks don't hate in a silo. <laughs> and, you know, so this is where in terms of you know public education, you know, bef- even before we get there, I, I think that there's scope for us to work together. And this, when I say we, this is sort of this is advocacy groups. This is faith based communities. Um, you know, there's a real opportunity here for people to build new bridges uh, to communities that, you know, are, are maybe in the same area or same city, but they're not working with yet to think about how to address these issues. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you, if you look on social media, you know, they have spent a lot of time um, thinking about um, uh, terrorist attacks that could be labeled jihadist terrorist attacks. So let's say Al-Qaeda related or ISIS related. Lots of money, lots of time has been spent on this, mm-hmm. in part because there are real clear laws around any organization that's designated as a foreign terrorist organization. But we've not spent nearly the amount of time thinking about um, hate against minority communities. And this is an area where, you know, we, we could do a whole lot better to try and understand Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and anti a bunch of things um, online. And we, we just haven't gotten there yet. And this is where I think, you know, we need to be putting more pressure on the social media companies to step up. Because, you know, what we don't want is some 13-year-old Mm-hmm. to get online and find some wild conspiracy theories about Muslims doing X or Y or Z. And as it stands, you find these things all over YouTube, all over Facebook. And this is really problematic. There are no laws that prohibit this. In fact, because we have the First Amendment, which, um, uh, you know, for all the obvious reasons and good reasons, we, we you know, we have. But it, it means that people can say some pretty horrible things. Right. And we haven't found out you know, yet where the lines are. And I think we need to be thinking more carefully about where those lines are, where it moves from free speech to dangerous speech. Right. Um, because that some of this stuff is, is for the sole purpose of spewing hate. And um, I just don't think it, it should be so easily findable and so easy to amplify and spread. That That's that's sort of where I, I see this. But in terms of public education, I think you're right. But this is, you know, first and foremost... I think what we're going to see and what we're already seeing as a result of 2015, mm-hmm. you know, the, the election uh, campaign and then obviously the elections, is that you do have more communities energized. I mean, over 100 Muslims ran for public office. You have people across the country that are mobilizing. And these are positives. But I think what happened in New Zealand is a, a clear call that so much more needs to be done, um, not just to complain about, you know, what the president and others are doing, but to think about, like, what are some real world solutions? And uh, getting the tech companies more focused on these issues is, is one of those things. And obviously holding our elected officials uh, to a higher standard is, is something else as well. Mm. Well, I definitely see what you're saying related to public education and not necessarily in the traditional uh, understanding of it, the classroom setting, but um, but the ways in which we learn and the ways in which our opinions are, um, are, are, are influenced and formed. Uh, in the conversation in, in, you know, in the uh, last election, which was around how social media was utilized uh, by f- foreign state actors uh, to sway the opinion of voters, 
Uh, and if we can follow that logic and there's been responses from social media platforms like like Facebook um, uh, and, and understand that impact uh, to your point, I think that that possibly, yes, there should be some type of a, some type of a, a label, a flag or something. I mean, because if they can put explicit lyrics on packaging for, well, I don't know if anybody buys CDs anymore, but uh, that was, you know, that was a big thing at one point to let folks know that what you're about to listen to contains explicit lyrics. So maybe there is, um, there's something, something similar to that that could be done for, to flag hate speech, to flag, you know, anything that's going to eventually lead to somebody writing a manifesto and storming someone's house of worship. Yeah, totally. And I, I just want to circle back to your excellent point about public education. And I mean, I know we just, you've sketched out, you know, what it looks like in the broadest sense, but, you know, back to your initial point about sort of maybe in a, in a, in a much more traditional understanding, you know, the, the, the fact is that Muslims make up 1% of the population. That's 3.5 million Muslims. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they are, you know, the communities are clustered in some of the bigger cities. But, you know, what this means is that many Americans do not interact with Muslims. And their knowledge of Muslims is solely based on what they see on social media, what they see in pop culture. And this is where I, I do think in terms of public education, you know, young kids, school kids should know more about um, not just Muslim communities, but other minority communities. Sure. And I think it's, you know, one of the ways to pull apart myths and misinformation is to provide, you know, real information and put a human face to um, stories and statistics. So it's not just statistical abstracts, but, you know, there are 3.5 million Muslims that live in the country. But I, I think that that's something that'd be super useful. And I, I think it is a, a, a fact that, you know, there is still a lot of muscle memory from 9-11 and uh, a lot of fear and the rise of ISIS and, and all of the horrific things they did, mm-hmm. you know, reinforce some of the worst ideas that people have. And the way to pull those apart is by, you know, telling real stories and humanizing people. And I think there's efforts underway to do this, but I think far more can be done. And to your excellent point, and, you know, it's in the public school systems that, you know, where where this could be done at a very early age, and I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, I certainly think um, in terms of uh, giving a, a better picture of who the Muslim communities uh, or the, the the communities that comprise the Muslim population, um, you know, it's a diverse, it, you know, it's a it's a quite quite a diverse uh, community, and I think a part of taking away that perception of of otherness is to show, yeah. you know, is to show the diversity, is to show, you know, you got generations of uh, of, of Muslims, you know, uh, African Americans and South Asians and Arabs and and, and so on, uh, and really. Uh, and really give it the proper uh, representation that it deserves. No, I think it's a it's a great point, and for the, all the reasons you've just uh, laid out, we're doing New America is uh, doing a major study in Houston that looks at Muslim communities there, and you know we're we're doing a couple of things. First, we're just sort of sketching out who the communities are. So there is a a, a large and vibrant African-American Muslim community, which is, you know, part of but different from the growing Hispanic Muslim community, which is different from the Arab immigrant communities and and so on. And so we're, we're sketching out what the communities look like, but we're also doing um, qualitative and quantitative research to show the impact and contributions they're making, because we believe the best way to pull apart some of these myths and misinformation 
is by, you know, one, you know, telling a story about these communities, but also showing the kinds of contributions they make. And so we're doing that work on the ground in Houston, and, you know, we hope to do it in other cities. But, uh, you know, the, the grisly attack, a terrorist attack in New Zealand is just another reminder, um, uh, you know, that, you know, we can't prevent all of these things from happening, but we, we certainly can do a whole lot better job of trying to communicate to the wider public what Muslim communities look like and to try and dispel some of the myths and misinformation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I would uh, I would like to mention with regard to the Muslim population in the U.S. being one percent, uh, it's also the same uh, population uh, in New Zealand, one percent of the population there. Yeah. Um, but what I must say that I I, I was tre- uh, tremendously heartened by two things. One, Prime Minister Arden's uh, not not only her uh, empathetic response, um, uh, but uh, I was heartened by a an immediate response to the semi-automatic uh, weapons. Uh, that, but more importantly, to uh, for her making a call to a global study of, I think it was to, to hatred and bigotry, uh, you know, of, of, of all sorts. Uh, and I think these are things, it's not just to respond to the, to the incident, you know, on his face, but to look at the underlying causes of it. So I think, that's right. you know, that's, that's the kind of leadership that we would hope to to have um, here, but you know we have to deal with what we have. So yeah. that's right. And uh, but no, I I think what I mean I, I think that she's done a number of things right, and uh, I think that she's led by example. And I I to your point, I I would I certainly hope that our leaders, you know, not just at the national level, uh, but at the state and local level, will will follow suit. Uh, but there's no question um, that we need to better understand. Um, you know, how hate originates and spreads. And it's not just about content moderation on, online. It's also thinking about, you know, the origins of these things and how we can and better address them. Yes. And, and to bring it back to the work that you're doing with the uh, the New America um, uh, project, this allows for folks to, to see how that hate manifests itself uh, towards the Muslim community here and now and to and to formulate responses that are going to uh, put those numbers in reverse. So would you tell folks again where they can go to to uh, stay up to date on the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can go on, on to New America's website. Uh, you'll, you'll find the Muslim Diaspora Initiative. And in there, you're going to you'll find a, uh, an in-depth and interactive uh, uh, page that that's uh, entitled Anti-Muslim Activities in the United States. And and uh, it, it's a useful resource, um, to, and it, it shows the trends. It's, it's worth noting that, uh, you know, I, I did this study um, in large part because I was traveling all over the country and I was hearing from uh, local Muslim community members. Mm-hmm. But lots of bad things were happening that weren't getting a lot of attention, and they were concerned that the, you know, the full picture wasn't understood. And so we pulled together this study using scholarship and data, and, uh, you know, there's sure enough, there's 736, 763 incidents, um, 85, more than 85 percent of all incidents were from late 2015 until just after uh, a month after President uh, Trump was elected. And so there's there's no question there's a trend. Um, and it was, you know, both the result of the rise of ISIS and the spectacular attacks that were played over and over again on TV, coupled with with dangerous political rhetoric, and both of those things together led to 
to where we currently are. But um, you can find this on New America's website. Um, if you just were to go to Google and type in New America anti-Muslim um, project, you'll you'll find it. Well, uh, I certainly appreciate uh, the work that you're doing, Bobby. And um, just to make just to point out, the last time we talked, I think it was back in August. Um, it was the number was at 724 at that point, and it's gone up to 763. So that's right. And that, let me just sorry to, to no, just it's important to tell folks one other thing. We are very conservative in the way we count, and so. These numbers um, do not probably reflect um, the full extent of activity. So we, we can only find incidents where there's a police report or a court report or a, a media report. So there's lots of things out there happening that we're not aware of um, just because we couldn't find reference to it. And the other thing is we only include incidents where there's, um, a, a clear, where there's clear evidence of anti-Muslim bias. Mm-hmm. And so what do I mean by this? So you've got attacks against Sikhs because, uh, you know, maybe someone thinks they're Muslim, but if they don't, if, if it's not referenced in the police report or the court report um, that there was an, that was, you know, there was a result of anti-Muslim bias, we don't include it. Um, so it just means like there are lots of incidents out there that are happening that, that aren't included. So the, the, the situation that you see here is probably better than what it actually is. And that doesn't, uh, say a whole lot of positive things, and it, it certainly says more work needs to be done um, is, is where we're at. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some who might get down uh, hearing that the numbers are actually higher than reported, might get a little depressed. Well, let, let me just, before we <laughs> jump off here, if I can just say one more thing, and yeah. I, I do think it's important note, you know, noting this, mm-hmm. is that you know this does paint you know, using scholarship and data, it does paint a picture that that is that that can be depressing. Yeah. I think the upside is this, though: we had over a hundred Muslims that ran for public office. Mm-hmm. We've got two female Muslims that are now members of Congress. Um, I'm seeing across the country not just uh, members of the Muslim community, but members of all kinds of minority communities that are that are mobilizing for positive action. And so I think that. You know, this dark period we're in, you know, the silver lining is actually that we're seeing more people energized, more people engaging with civil society and the political process than than ever before. And I suspect that 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're going to see, you know, future leaders who were energized uh, because of what they're seeing and what was happening to their own communities right now. So I, I think that we will see a number of positives come out of this particular period as hard as that is to see at this point. You know what? Um, I have, I have turned my frown into a, into a smile. Uh, (laughs) So absolutely. That, that is a great point to bring up that I think the resistance towards hate and bigotry has, has definitely caused folks who are uh, whatever their, however they fall into that, uh, you know, being affected by it has caused them to definitely uh, coalesce and come together and, um, and be even stronger in their resistance. So, yeah, I think that is a that is a great point and observation. So, well, thank you for joining us, brother. Thank you for having me. It's a great talk. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? 
Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. <laughs> hey, everyone. Let's all stop what we're doing and take a moment. You see? Every moment can be kind of special. But they can be loud moments, goofy moments, dorky moments. It doesn't matter. Because every time dads like us take a moment like that to spend with our kids, well, it's pretty momentous. So let's take a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, if you haven't already done so, folks, make sure that you are following us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. You can listen at your leisure. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in and you'll find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA at Radio Islam USA uh, I guess I should also let you know to stop by RadioIslam.com there you can check out guest bios uh, pictures and just uh, stay up to date with the behind the scenes uh, goings on and such of the program uh, always happy to hear from you if you'd like to drop us an email you can do so at producer at radioislam.com. That's producer at radioislam.com. All right, before we get going, folks, I guess I feel the urge to remind you that we are coming to you from downtown Chicago. Uh, just a few feet. Well, it feels like a few feet or probably sounds like a few feet from the elevated trains in the loop. Um, I think that's the brown or green or purple or orange or one of those that's going by right now in the background. But anyway, uh, we want to start out with a really with the scriptural reference. Uh, I think that's really going to set the tone for everything that we're going to get into, uh, especially coming out of the last segment. Uh, there is a verse in the Quran which states that God does not change the condition of a people until they first change what is in their own hearts. I'll repeat that. God does not change the condition of a people until they first change what is in their own hearts. Now, when I think about the space we find ourselves in at this moment uh, as, a, as a nation, uh, it is a space that is occupied in some instances by human beings that are given to hatred, uh, given to bigotry, and who also, this is the, the really important part of that, who also happen to have access to the levers of power. And because of that, uh, that means they have the ability to affect the lives of others through the creation of legislation, through the narratives uh, that they craft and promote about other human beings that they deem to be less than. Now, whether those that are looked down on belong to a different religion or their of a different ethnicity or speak a different language or grew up in a different part of the world, uh, whatever the, the, the defining factor is, whatever that particular element or set of elements uh, are, 
those people are the targets of their hatred. And when we talked uh, in the last segment, we talked with Dr. Uh, Bobby McKenzie from the New America Muslim Diaspora Initiative. He let us know that there's been a drastic increase in anti-Muslim attacks that have taken place since uh, 2015. Uh, a tremendously visible uptick. But when we think about the context that these events, that this hate is manifesting uh, itself in, when we see that across the U.S. mosques are being vandalized, local government officials are denouncing Islam, state legislatures are debating anti-Muslim laws. And in fact, since 2012, uh, according to the uh, anti, uh, according to the database uh, found on the uh, Muslim Diaspora Initiative, there have been 763 separate incidents documented since 2012 up to the present day. Now, what's important to remember, without rehashing everything that we went through in that first segment, it's important to remember that this is just what has been documented. So we don't, when it, when it comes to um, those who are most vulnerable, those who are marginalized uh, and don't feel that they have the ability to, uh, to stand up and advocate for themselves, to, to, to speak out, to fight for their rights out of fear that they could be deported, out of fear that they might be further victimized by uh, law enforcement or whatever, those numbers are likely a whole lot higher than, than what we have. So the Trump presidency, it has been defined not just by hateful and bigoted rhetoric, but also by policies, by policies that adversely impact the most vulnerable populations whether it's the Muslim ban or the dismissal of African-Americans complaints about police violence and accountability uh, or the demonization of the NFL players as they protested, trying to bring light to this, uh, you know, through, through kneeling in the, uh, throughout the national anthem. Right? They, were, they were attacked. The issue of police violence and accountability was never brought up. Was, it was never addressed. As a matter of fact, he doubled down on the blind loyalty, a blind support of law enforcement. Or if it's in his reference to the men, women, and children uh, that were a part of that, that caravan migrating from uh, Central American nations like the Honduras, which is one of the poorest nations on the continent. One of the poorest, a place where economic and physical security, these are two things that are in short supply and have left people in an untenable situation where they had to leave, had to get up and, and, and came seeking asylum, seeking security, seeking a better life in the U.S., looking for asylum. Uh, but he referred to them as an infestation, as a horde. Uh, he talked about, you know, bad people being amongst them and, and just all, all types of, of, of comments that, that really just laid bare that, uh, that bigotry and that hatred that rests with him. Uh, and also the bigotry and hatred 
that he has been stoking and, uh, and, and pulling out of that segment of society whose lives are very much informed by uh, those things, by bigotry, by hatred, by xenophobia, um, by, by ignorance. So we're now at a point where his rhetoric, uh, is, it, is, it is expanding uh, and his targets continue to also expand. Um, I guess I don't have to remind anybody, but we realize that we are now uh, living in a time where the U.S. legislature, it is the most diverse that it's ever been. And there are more women now, in particular, there are more women now who are a part of that governing body, who are part of that legislature. And among them, we have two Muslim women, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And it is the latter uh, that I've got to bring up because the attacks that have been levied against her uh, of late go beyond simple disagreements about policy. They go beyond the rebuke she received for a, an interpreted anti-Semitic statement. And now we're at a point where our president is making light of uh, physical threats, threats not just physical threats, but, but death threats. He is using Congresswoman Omar's name, bringing her up and politicizing not just an issue, but he's politicizing her very existence. Take a listen. Special thanks to Representative Omar of Minnesota. Oh. Oh, I forgot. She doesn't like Israel. I forgot. I'm so sorry. Those sarcastic comments from President Trump about Democratic Minnesota Congresswoman Ilan Omar in front of a conservative Jewish group on Saturday came less than a day after a New York man was charged with threatening her life. The man was charged with threatening to assault and murder a United States official for a phoned-in threat he allegedly made last month. He told investigators that he was a patriot, that he loves the president, and that he hates radical Muslims in our government. This is according to the FBI affidavit. Congresswoman Omar responded to both Trump's attack as well as the death threat leveled against her with a bilingual tweet. My Lord, forgive my people, for they do not know. Meanwhile, in that same speech, Trump implied dual loyalty by American Jews to Israel, which is incidentally the same anti-Semitic trope for which so, Congresswoman Omar. What we should also know is that uh, what we should also know is that the threat that was phoned in was, "I'll put a bullet in her," and instead of instead of outrage, it was met with dismissal. And of course, he would take no responsibility. He would take absolutely no responsibility, even though uh, this man uh, has identified himself as a Trump supporter, uh, has has expressed his disdain for Muslim participation. Anyone who was 
a visible Muslim, right? You understand that to him and to those who think like him, a radical Muslim is anyone who appears to be Muslim. So it really doesn't matter if you're an actual Muslim or not. Muslim or not, we can actually, we can separate this this um, this argument uh, into two sides. One, you're gonna have the folks who are by their appearance, right? So that means those who fit the phenotypical profile, uh, those who you could be South Asian, you could be Arab, uh, and if you happen to be wearing what are what are looked at as Islamic clothing, but we can also call those um, just culturally uh, traditional clothing, you, you're going to be labeled as a Muslim, as a radical Muslim, because you are, you are visible. You are out in the public eye, and how dare you? And then, of course, you're going to have those who, who are actually, by their appearance, their appearance is a reflection of their belief. And you, because you're in the public space, according to this individual, you are a radical Muslim and your existence is antithetical to democracy, is antithetical to, uh, to the security of the United States. But really, we do understand these folks continue to come out and they, they're falling from the same nut tree of uh, these, these white supremacists. You're a visible Muslim and you are a threat to society. You are a threat to these people's idea of what this nation is supposed to stand for, what it's supposed to be about. Now, there are a lot of parallels uh, that exist in this thinking from these individuals that are stoked on by the president that we unfortunately have right now. But you know what? We also do believe if you're a person of faith, if you're a person of belief, regardless of your faith tradition, then you do believe that that our creator is one who brings, who can bring life out of death, right? We believe in redemption. We believe that what can look like a setback, what can, what can appear to be a negative situation can actually turn into a positive. It can actually turn into an uh, elevating situation. So even in this, even in this type of a situation where we have, uh, People who are working from a position of hate, from a position of, of, uh, of, of bigotry. We believe that even in that, there is a, a positive that can come from that. And one of those positives is it causes those who might otherwise sit quietly by and not say anything and not get into the fight, not add their voices, not add their resources to uh, speaking for justice and speaking for the the best parts of who we are as a as a human as a human family they consider that public presence to be evidence of radicalism and i want you to think about something here because there's a lot that's going on right now not just here in the u.s but there's a lot going on around the world and one of the things that's taking place right now uh, for those of you who are keeping up with the, the work of Sound Vision, is the persecution of the Uyghur. There was a rally recently in D.C., as a matter of fact, this past weekend. And when we talk about 
the threat of the threat that Muslims in public, Muslims who are looking to be a part of the decision-making process, Muslims who are trying to represent not just themselves, but their neighbors as well. When we talk about the threat that presents to some and how they want to respond to that with violence. And, you know, how praise be to God that they caught this guy. They arrested him. But I want you to think about the Uyghur people. Those who are, I mean, almost a million people who are right now in concentration camps in China. And their only crime, their only crime is that they are Muslim, is that they are they are practicing Muslims, that they go to, to, to Juma prayer on Friday, that they, that they don't eat pork, that they dress in ways that uh, may identify them as Muslim, that they have a beard, that they, have, that they wear a hijab. And because of that, because of that, that same mindset that we see that exists here, that has given way to over 760 documented incidents of anti-Muslim violence. That same mindset, it exists there, but there it is taken on, it is taken on far deadlier and more tragic outcomes. Because there, it is not just burning a masjid. It is not property damage. It is not, and, and God forbid, you know, uh, may Allah give them all uh, paradise. Uh, we think about the, the 50, the 50 Muslims whose lives were taken in uh, the uh, Al-Nur Mosque and the Linwood Mosque in New Zealand, right? And we, we grieve for them, for their families, their communities. But all evil, all evil is not equal. So it's not just killing 50 people in a masjid. It is incarcerating almost a million people. It is torturing those people. It is calling those spaces re-education camps, getting uh, with the whole purpose of getting them to abandon their faith. It is trying to get them to, uh, to abandon their dietary restrictions or prohibitions, right? It's, it's trying to get them to, to marry. As a matter of fact, here, here, here's one of those uh, realities that exists there. Some of the women have to marry Chinese men in order to have their families released from these concentration camps. And many of them afterwards, uh, it's been reported, have committed suicide. And I also want to... Uh, to bring to us with the pluralism that we have here in the U.S. It is not always a pluralism that is that exists for the benefit and protection of a pluralistic society, but it, it, it is a pluralism in appearance only. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we have members of the Chinese Communist Party who are here and waiting to uh, assault to attack those who speak out against the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. So our keynote speaker this coming Saturday, Mirugul Turusun, she is the only Uyghur woman who has, um, who has been 
in the concentration camps in China and now has asylum here in the U.S. And she's here telling her account of her treatment, of her torture. And she does so not from a position of security. She does so still worrying, still still fearful for her own safety because there are members of the Chinese Communist Party here, loyal to the party here in the United States. And they have made her stay here, one that has been stripped of the security and the safety that she was looking for. The sisters had to move three times, three times since coming here. I want us to take a listen to some of the statements she made before a congressional committee. Let's take a listen. But I'm always worried. All this time, I don't feel like I'm safe here. The second time I was detained, I was taken to a special room and placed in a high chair. Bands held my arms and the legs in place and tightened when they pressed a button. The guards put a helmet on my shaved head. Each time I was electrocuted, my whole body would shake violently and I could feel the pain in my veins. I thought I would rather die than go through this torture. I begged them to kill me. Before we ate breakfast, which was water with very little rice, we had to sing songs hailing the Communist Party. We had to repeat in Chinese, in code, long live Xi Jinping, and in code, lenience for those who repent and a punishment for those who resist. Anyone who could not memorize a book of slogans and rules within 14 days would be denied food or beaten. So I hope that what we're able to do is to, is to see oppression and to see bigotry, to see racism, to see all of these things that fracture us, see all these things that create oppressed minorities uh, that allow for the misuse of power and to connect all of those things. Yes, we have a lot going on here in the U.S., we have systemic and structural racism. We have bigotry. We have we have all types of we have we have all types of issues, economic, social, political. But we also have the ability to fight. We have the ability to to raise our voices, to show up, to speak out. What this sister just shared was that she's here, but she is not she is not the beneficiary of those of the security, of the confidence that many of us have that we have the right and the ability to stand up. And yeah, I know, I'm not naive uh, by any means to think that people don't disappear, that people, you know, that people don't die, that people are not uh, assassinated for, for saying the wrong thing or the right thing in front of the wrong people. But that's a conversation for another time. What I'm saying here is that this sister here, she is here, but she doesn't have the safety, doesn't have the security, doesn't have the assurances of our own physical well-being. And she has endured uh, a, a great trauma. And that there are people here in the U.S. 
that are dedicated not to the upholding of justice, but they are dedicated to continuing this attack on the Uyghur Muslims. These people who uphold, uh, who hold the party line, the Communist Party line uh, in China, and who would try to further that propaganda that these are re-education camps, or that they don't exist, or that this is all fabricated, and that we are not looking at a genocide, that we're not looking at a, at a terrible humanitarian crisis. This is an extremely important time for us because nothing changes unless we change. God does not change the condition of a people until they first change what is in their own hearts. And there is so much that needs to be changed in so many places. But this is one place where we have the ability to actually affect some change. And if that change isn't happening, it's probably because we have not dedicated ourselves to making that change a reality. So we're not just asking you to come out for a fundraiser, for a social. We're asking you to give us your support. We're asking you to make a dedication within yourself to help those who are not able to help themselves. Yeah, we have problems here and we can work on those things. But the problems in this space, the problems that Sound Vision has given its attention, its resources, its time to. These are areas where those people are those who are talked about in, in the Quran and the Bible. Those people who who pray, when will the help of God come? And the help of God. It's in us. It's in it's in our response to their call. So we need your support. We need your support. Sister Mirigal needs your support and all the others that she represents, those who are not able to share their story. They need your support. So please don't just like, don't just share, come out. Show your support, show your commitment, show your dedication by going to soundvision.com. Click on the link for the Save Uyghur campaign, uh, Save Uyghur dinner, purchase a ticket and come out. Purchase this ticket and come out. This work is too important. There's too much at stake. And if we don't rise to the occasion, then we cannot be surprised when things do not change. So lots of work ahead of us. Um, we'll be talking about uh, another event that we have that we're working on uh, with uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. We'll be talking about that tomorrow with God's permission, inshallah. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq el -Amin. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And I remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.